The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which are often called the prologue, are filled with stunning truths. If the Spirit of God were to open our eyes, and I trust that He is, if He opens our eyes, what we find in the first 18 verses in particular are astonishing truths about Jesus. So far in this gospel, we've learned that Jesus is pre-existent, that is, Before there was a was, he was. He was before the beginning. There was never a time when he was not. He always was. We also learn that Jesus is united with the Father, and yet he is distinct. And then we learn that Jesus is truly God. And then two weeks ago, we learned that Jesus created everything in creation. Everything that was made, the scriptures tell us, was made through Jesus. And then Jesus is the giver of light and life. Now, our passage today contains two more astonishing truths. And so let's read together. We're going to study verses 9 through 11 to see what these are. But let's read the context beginning in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, here are the two stunning truths found in verses 11, uh, verses 9 through 11. The first is that the word of God, the true God, visits the world. Now, you know that because of Christmas. But that is stunning, that the true God visits the world. And the second stunning truth is that when He did this, when the true God visited the world, people would have nothing to do with Him. Now, the way John presents these truths is by continuing the picture of light and darkness that he started in verses 4 and 5. 
In verse 9, John presents the true light, that is Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, John presents the dark hearts, the people who rejected Jesus. And that's how we'll break out the division of this sermon, the true light and the dark hearts. So let's look at the true light in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We learned a few weeks ago when we studied verses 4 to 5 that Jesus is called the light of men. And that it says, light shines in the darkness. Now, light, we said, was a metaphor, a picture in the scriptures that has, is, is twofold. On the one hand, it has an intellectual sense. And in an intellectual sense, light has to do with truth, truth going out. In the other sense, it's a moral sense, and it has to do with purity, and it has to do with holiness going out. So light makes a perfect metaphor for Jesus, because he is perfectly revealing God, and he is perfectly holy. So in both senses of the word, Jesus is light. Now, verse 9 adds to that. He adds something to what John has already written. Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. And he was coming into the world. So Jesus is the true light. Now that word translated true has a range of meanings in the Greek. It can simply mean real or genuine. Predominantly, that was the way it was used in the Greek, and certainly Jesus was the real, genuine light. It could also mean true in the sense of opposite of what is false. It's the common way, of course, we use it. Jesus speaks of true worshipers in chapter 4, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So, true worshipers versus false worshipers. But there's an additional way that the Greeks of John's day use this word translated true. And it's a way in which we really don't use it. In some contexts, true has the idea of ultimate. The ultimate. He's the true light as in he's the ultimate light. For example, and there are a number of occurrences here in in John's gospel like this. But for example... In the Old Testament, manna came. Remember that? Manna came from heaven. Now that was true, that was, that was real bread from heaven. Real bread from heaven. But in chapter 6, verse 32 of John's gospel, it says that Jesus is the true bread from heaven. In other words, there was the manna that God gave to the Israelites. And then there's Jesus, who is the better bread, the ultimate bread, the greater bread. Or, Israel was chosen, was a chosen vine in the Old Testament. One of the metaphors used of Israel. They were the vine. But, chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus calls himself the True vine. You see? He's the ultimate vine. He's the better vine. He's the superior vine. Or, as in this verse, the Old Testament scriptures gave light. 
But Jesus is the true light. He's the ultimate light. The Old Testament scriptures told us about God. It revealed to us about God. But Jesus perfectly, ultimately, superiorly reveals God. You see? So this is a way to, the, the true, we don't use it like that, but the Greeks did. Now, in context, a comparison is being made between Jesus as the true light and John the Baptist, who is not the light. It says, there was a man from God, verse 6, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, later on in this gospel, Jesus says that John the Baptist, in fact, was a light. Just not the light. Chapter 5, verse 35. He says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he was casting truth and purity and the truth about God as he operated until he was beheaded. But he was a lamp, and he was a light, but he wasn't the light. He wasn't the true light. John the Baptist was used by God to shine truth into the world, but he was only a man. The true, highest, best, ultimate light was Jesus. And we know that the reason for that is that Jesus is God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He revealed himself through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The true light, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his, the, the word of his power. So there is Jesus, the exact imprint. You want to know about God? You look to Jesus, who is not the Father, but is united with the Father and is himself very God. Now, verse 9 says that he, Jesus, as the true light, gives light to everyone. Now, we should talk a little bit about the translation there. The Greek verb is photidzo. Photidzo. The Greek word can mean either to give knowledge, as in to enlighten, or it can mean to shed light, make visible, bring light, as in gives light. And different English translations opt for one or the other. Up until 2011, the ESV, which is the translation I use, translated this verb, enlighten. So we read, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. In 2011, they had a, the, the text edition that they revised came out with gives light. And I think it's a good change. I'm happy with the change and eliminates the confusion. The only major translation, I think, that continues to use the word enlighten is the NAS, which is also overall a good translation. But the idea isn't that Jesus came into the world and granted enlightenment in some sort of mystical sense. The idea is that Jesus came into the world and cast light across the whole world. As the light, He shines on everyone. But John portrays the light as having a unique quality. 
What makes this light so unique is it has a quality that no other light has. Jesus as the truth, breaking into the world, has a quality that no one else has like this. And that is that the light divides and separates. This is a light that when it pierces, it pierces darkness and it separates people. He reveals the true hearts of people. He reveals the true hearts of men. Those who hate the light, run from the light, and love their darkness. Those who by God's Spirit come to love the light, see the light, flee the darkness, and embrace Jesus. For example, in John chapter 3, go over there just a few pages. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Now that's the same phrase. You see that? The light has come into the world. Same phrasing. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So light breaks in and it causes a separation. Those who love the darkness, it says, hate the light and flee from the light so they aren't exposed. And those who love the truth, that is, does what is true, come to the light so that they can be shown that they have a God-connectedness. Works have been carried out in God, a God-connectedness. Or go over to chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12, says again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So by following Jesus, who is the true light, it will cause a distinction to be made, and you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or look at chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Now, without going into detail on that passage, you see that there's a distinction being made, and the imagery is seeing versus not seeing. That is, this is in the realm of of sight. Light is primarily experienced through seeing, so the imagery is parallel. So Jesus' coming into the world causes a separation. This light is unique in that. One more, John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So again, Jesus is breaking into the world as the true light, draws those who believe in Him out of the darkness. So Jesus, as the true light, comes into the world, and His whole life is light, and it divides people into children of the light or children of darkness. So, God comes into the world. That's the first stunning truth of verses 9 to 11. God comes into the world, and the Word visits the world. 
But we know that this is a fallen world, and so in some ways we aren't surprised to read that his entrance into the world was not marked by universal gladness. And that's the second section of our passage. The dark hearts. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, to fully grasp what John is saying, we need to know some things about how he uses the word world. The Greek word is cosmos. Cosmos. It's used 185 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. But over half of those usages are in John's writings alone. So, 78 times in this Gospel of John, the word world is used. Now, you compare that to Matthew, who did it eight times, or Mark three times, or Luke three times. 78 times is a lot of times. Stunning amount of times. So this is clearly a theme of John's Gospel. The word derived from a, a, comes from a word in the Greek for order. So it had to do with order, and it later became known for the word for world. The Greeks of John's day used cosmos, to refer to the order of the world. When they looked at the world, they were stunned by the order of it and by its beauty. And so, it, for the Greeks, cosmos was a positive word. It was a beautiful word. It was an attractive. The world was something attractive and positive. But John uses it differently. In John's Gospel, the word world has shades of meaning, and it means differently depending on the context. And so you come across the word world and you have to understand what is the context here and how is he using it. Sometimes he uses it to refer to the created universe like he's doing in verse 10, the middle of verse 10. The world was made through him. Well, we already know that must mean the created universe because he already said in verse 3 that he created the world. Other times it refers to people in general. Chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one or one another, look, the world has gone after him. The world. So you think, okay, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't probably mean the planet. It probably means crowds or throngs of people are going after him. And we use it in exactly the same way. Sometimes when we say the world, we mean planet Earth. And sometimes when we say the world, we mean a whole bunch of people. But the main usage in John's Gospels and in all John's writings refers not to the whole created world, And not to throngs of people, but the created order that is in rebellion against its maker. That is, the whole mess of sinful humanity in rebellion against its creator and satanic opposition. And so in the gospel, the word world, cosmos, has a decidedly negative tone. In fact, one commentator observes, and I think he's right, that you can't find a single instance of that's unambiguous, a single instance of John using the word world positively. It's all at best neutral, and those are only a handful. And more likely, it's all negative. The world stands in opposition to Christ in John's gospel. 
So the world is therefore negative because it's standing in opposition of Christ. Verse 9, he was coming into the world. (laughs) So he's coming into that mess. He's coming into not just planet Earth. He's coming into something. He's trying to tell us something greater. He's coming into the mess of sinful humanity that is opposed to him. He's coming into the realm of the prince of demons. He's coming into a whole order that is arrayed against him. That's where Jesus came. So Jesus is shown to be above and outside the world again and again in this gospel. He's above it and he's outside it. For example, in chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. See how he does that? So you're from here. I'm not from here. You're of this place. I'm not of this place. You're down here below. I'm up here above. And again, it isn't, doesn't simply mean he's from heaven. While the Pharisees lived on the earth, he means that the Pharisees are part of sinful humanity and satanic opposition that opposes Christ. Another example of Jesus above and outside the world is found in chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus is under questioning from Pilate. And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I not be, might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Okay, do we got that? This is not Jesus' kingdom. That just undoes a lot of people's theology. Right there. Do you think somehow we're trying to build Jesus' kingdom here on earth? Well, Jesus is the one who said, my kingdom's not here on earth. If it was, we would have been fighting. My kingdom is not of this world. And because Jesus came to rescue his sheep from the world, it's good news for believers. Because believers are also pictured as not being of the world and being outside the world. John fifteen nineteen, speaking to his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, watch this phrase, out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Well, that makes sense. If we're found in Christ and he's not of the world and he's outside the world and he's above the world, then that's where we would be too, right? In fact, believers are never said to be members of the world. And so as you study John's gospel and it talks about the world, he never is including believers in that. Just as Jesus came into it, but was not of it, so we are in it, but not of it physically on the planet, physically in the system, just as Jesus broke into this sinful humanity, but not of it. 
Jesus is called the Savior of the world in chapter 4, verse 42. Now, you think about that. That's a phrase that we just kind of throw around, especially at Christmas time. Savior of the world. But just think about that phrase. Whatever else it says about Jesus, and I think it says a lot, it says nothing positive about the world that it needs a Savior. If He's the Savior of the world, then the world needs a Savior. That tells you nothing good about the world. John the Baptist cries out in chapter 1, verse 29, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. And again, whatever else that says about Jesus, it says nothing positive about the world that it is in sin and needs its sin taken away. So you can see that the mood of the world, the mood of that phrase is decidedly negative. And we'll see that again and again, well, 78 times in this gospel. We'll see it. So as we move from verse 9 to verse 10 to 11, what you find is that the mood shifts. If the music of verses 1 through 9 was a symphony of glory, it now becomes haunting bellows. It's like foreshadowing in a novel. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was in the world. That is the word, as we find out in verse 14, came in the flesh. He came into this world that is in rebellion against his maker. Previously, the whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus, but now he came personally. God came personally in the form of a man. And then it says, and the world was made through him. Again, that repeats what we learn in verse 3, that everything in the universe was made through Jesus. Now, John reminds us here as a way to say, since he made the world, surely the world should acknowledge him when he came. But what follows is a very simple statement, but really is an ocean of sadness. Yet the world did not know him. John's not saying that the world didn't know Jesus existed or that they didn't know much about him. The word know is an intimate know. This is a failure to know him as an intimate friend. The world did not know him as an intimate friend. He made the world and he made every person, but they failed to have a right relationship with him. It's a coldness to Jesus. They were not warm with him. They didn't know him because they didn't want to know him. They were spiritually blind to see the light. Couldn't see the light. It gets worse in verse 11. He came to his own. It's really an odd Greek phrasing because the phrase is, if you know much about languages, this is called neuter. So that could be translated, he came to his own things. He came to his own things. I think the idea here is he came home. Here's Jesus, and he came home. This is the exact expression used in chapter 19, verse 27, where John the Apostle took Jesus' mother, Mary, it says, into his home. Exact phrase. No accident that he's using it here. Here comes Jesus, and he came home. Jesus came into the world, and he wasn't like an alien. 
He took on flesh and he came to the world he created. He came in a sense home. And when he did that, he came to his own tribe. He came to his own people. He came to Israel. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He didn't come to a people who would have no reason to know him. He came to his kinfolk. He came to a people who should have known him. It was his home folk, the Jews who didn't receive him. They should have known better. They should have welcomed him. They should have received him. They should have been expecting him based on the Old Testament. And sure, there were those who expected him. There were those. But they're mentioned in Scripture. They're notable in the Scriptures because they're so rare, like the Simeons of the world. Simeon, who was in that temple when Jesus was presented before the Lord as a baby. He'd been waiting for the comfort of Israel. I remember Anna, who was 84. She was a, a widower, widow. She was 84. She was always at the temple. She was praying and she was fasting and she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. But this, the main story of Israel, the main story is not the Simeons and the Annas. The main story of Israel was they weren't like those. They continually rejected their Savior. That's the story in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 65, 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Or Jeremiah seven twenty five. from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants to the prophets to them. Day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So, when the true light came to his own people, they rejected him too. His own people did not receive him. That word receive is also a word that denotes intimacy. When Joseph took his wife, In Matthew 1, he received her. Same root word. He received her. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 3, that he goes to heaven to prepare a place for us. That's amazing. He goes to heaven to prepare a place for us. That's what he's doing. Preparing a place for you and me. And then he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. I will receive you. Same root word that where I am, you may be also as well. So that is, Jesus receives us. He receives us because He wants to be with us. He wants to be near with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And He wants to be near us and with us and in relationship with us for all eternity. And so He's coming back. But His own people largely didn't want a relationship with Him. They might take Him on their terms, but they wouldn't receive Him for who He really was. Now here's the deal. The whole world is implicated in verses 10 and 11. It's not just the Jewish rejection, it's the world rejection as well. The Jews were hostile, Pilate was indifferent, but all of them rejected Jesus in their own way. 
And the world rejects Jesus today in the same way. Some are openly hostile to Christ. And anything that goes by His names, they're hostile to, like Christians. Others reject Christ by receiving them only on their own terms. I'll receive Jesus if He's a good teacher. I'll receive Jesus if He's the most loving. I'll receive Jesus if He's a beacon of love and a shining example, but not God. I won't receive Him like that. Not one who insists that He is the only way to God. Not one who makes demands on my life. I won't receive Him like that. A kind of taking Jesus, but only on their own terms. Others pay no attention to Jesus at all. Why receive Christ when there's TV? Why receive Christ when there's a career to pursue? Or money to be made? Or a hobby to indulge in? Or perhaps He's just the God of your parents. And that's all He is. That's a kind of rejection. Just the God of my parents. My parents received Him. I don't need to receive Him. That's a rejection. Now before our salvation, we find ourselves among the world. We had... We had our own way of rejecting Jesus. We had our way. Maybe your story is, it was a hostile rejection of Jesus. Maybe your story is, I received Jesus, but only on my terms. Ah, yes, I made him Savior, but not made him Lord. You weren't ever saved. Or, I just didn't pay any attention to him. So it was on my radar screen. We had our way of rebelling against our Maker, our way of not knowing Him or receiving Him, and perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you're among the throngs. Perhaps you're among the world. And you haven't known Him, you haven't received Him. You're among the throngs who scoff or admire only the Jesus of your imagination. Or maybe you're just not that interested in Him. These are all kinds of rejections. These are flavors of rejection. A sign from heaven or a miracle wouldn't wake you from your stupor. You're who John spoke of in John chapter 12, verse 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. A sign wouldn't work for you. Because you're blind. But would you consider this? This true light traversed the cosmos and entered into this darkened world that's in rebellion against Him and willingly endured the shame and mistreatment by the people He had made and became the Savior of the world, even your Savior if you would believe, by dying on the cross? Would you consider that? Can you understand that these are the actions of one who loves you? To go from high to down below to a people who didn't want Him, and to suffer at their hands 
even to the point of death on a cross. This is what it cost him to reach you. This is the sacrifice he made to demonstrate his love for you. This is the this is Jesus's open hand reaching out to you, calling you to draw near. And would you reject him again and again? Why not instead receive him this day? Why not receive him this day? Come to know him savingly this day. Receive him for who he is. Turning away from your rejection and away from your sin. Confessing your sin this day. And embracing Christ by trusting that he forgives your sin, even yours. And then walking in obedience to your Savior, who is also your Lord. Why would you die, sinner? You don't like it that I talk to you like that. You bristle when I call you a sinner, and that's what you are. Why would you die? Hmm? Here I am, offering you eternal life, and you would rather die. You don't like it? Hmm. It's because you're blind. It's because of the hardness of heart. And here's the truth. You can't come to saving faith. Because you can't make a dead heart beat again. And you can't make blind eyes see. But only God can. Only God can take you from being a sinner to a saint. And that's what all believers are, saints. Only God can do that because the Spirit of God has to work that in you. It says in verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, that is, reborn, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. See, sinner, you can't make yourself a Christian but of God. So what is a sinner to do who wants to receive Christ but can't take the first step? You cry out. You cry out to God. The Spirit blows where He wishes. The Spirit must move. The Spirit must draw you. The Spirit must save you. And if He were to do that, then you would receive Him. You would receive Him savingly. And there are people right now who are praying for you. There are people right now praying that you would receive Christ. The true light is shining, even today. And it separates those who love darkness versus those who love the light. And so, come to the light. Come to the light. What a great light He is. He came into the world, and verse 12 says, All who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's good news. That's the good news of Jesus. So receive Him, believe Him, and so become a children of God. And if you are children, child of God right now, go on receiving Him, go on believing Him, and commending Him to others. Let's pray. Father, do a work in this. 
throng of people. God, you know I told them. So their blood is not on my hands. The gospel has gone out. And they have heard. And so, Father, we know this is a dangerous room. Because now the weight of responsibility is on each person to receive you. They've heard the gospel. And if they reject your son today, oh, what a fury your wrath will be on the judgment day. Because they've been given more light. And so the judgment will be worse. They're responsible. We don't want anyone, Father. We don't want anyone to walk out of this room, not a child of God. So move in your spirit. Even as we transition to communion, we pray, move your spirit this morning so that dead hearts would start beating and that people would cross from death to life and receive you savingly. You are such a good father. What a great joy it is to be one of your children. All the blessings, all the blessings that you've given us in relationship with you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.